I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Every wine is unique, and every, as every season is unique, and every row and every vine will perform in its own way each time around. So the challenge is to try and create something the best it can be, given that variability. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Rowley Millhitch has a long family history in Rutherglen. The words deep roots, new shoots, are used to describe Scion, his wine brand. But Scion is more than just another small winery. It's a visionary beacon, one that's reimagining and reshaping a landscape and a legacy. Hi, Rolly. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. How are you? I'm really well, thanks. How are you on this glorious day? Yeah, it's, I'm good. It's it's excellent. We've almost finished pruning for the for the season, which is good. The sun's out. The birds are chirping. Spring's nearly here. So things are great in Rutherglen today. I love that. And it is. It's mm-hmm. kind of a time when we're starting to think about moving on to the next season, which I think is, and especially spring. I love spring when everything's kind of, you know, emerging and kind of blossoming. It is. It's, it's a reminder that nature's in control, which we love. And I think it's, it brings energy. Um, we get excited. We're finishing off wines from earlier in the year in some cases and the new ones are just beginning. So it's a good time. There's not really a, a moment where there's a downtime where there's nothing happening in a winery, is there? <laughs> well, no, it's, it's pretty busy, um, which we love. That's why we do it. There's a little window after vintage. We try and pre-plan a holiday so we do take a break that's pretty important um but no all year round it's 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 all go we have a um a customer a customer facing element to the business too with Celador. so that's that's open every day so that doesn't stop but um with with respect to winemaking and viticulture yeah we can sneak in a month generally in may which is which is good it's uh it's a good time of the year the heat in the the summer's left us winter's not quite here it's a beautiful fringe season I love that. I'm going to circle back to your cellar door, but first I want to kind of start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Melbourne. Um, I loved it. I grew up in the northeastern suburbs. We weren't far from the Yarra River. Um, so as a kid, we had a really bumpy, potholy road at the end of our street and all us kids would go down there with bikes and buzz around. And as a kid, it was great. We were pretty close to nature at the same time so whilst we're in the city it wasn't you know the city jungle concrete jungle you'd think it was it was brilliant um i went through school down there went through high school there university i studied at monash in graphic design of all things which i loved and still reflect on today it has a lot to do with current day work um interestingly enough and then Moved up to Rutherglen in about 2005. It was over a, about 18 to 24 months that I'm, I sort of slowly transitioned up um, and and here I am. So amazing that you, you know, you studied, like you said, graphic design, which you can clearly see in your brand today. But tell me a little bit about why the move to Rutherglen and a little bit about the history of your family in the region. So the move to Rutherglen came about, it was all very serendipitous, I suppose, in that I hadn't planned to move to Rutherglen um, and to three years prior to moving up physically, I'd, I'd sort of moved up in spirit in that we planted a little vineyard um, 
mum and I planted that. We got some uni mates to come up and toil away and put vines in the ground and that was all fine. Um, but three years later, the reality to maybe take what were our first crop through to a, a finished wine was was there. And I remember at uni reading a quote that to risk nothing risks everything and it stuck with me and I thought, you know what, at 23, why can't I do that? And if it doesn't work out, I can go back to doing what I'm currently doing. So it, it happened because I didn't want to let an opportunity pass and and that's in part why I'm here. The other reason Rutherglen, I suppose it could have been a few places around the country, but Rutherglen for um, my family's got some long history in, in viticulture and winemaking with the Morris family, um, George Francis Morris, who was set up Fairfield Vineyard in 1859. Um, it was a huge concern back in the day in the 1870s to 90s. It was one of the biggest wineries in the Southern Hemisphere. And through his, I guess, entrepreneurial spirit, his risk-taking, um, he he founded and, and, and built this. It was a real empire in its time. And I suppose that link is also quite inspiring in that you can do things in a way you have a vision for and and have success so that I guess little link was is important to me personally and it also is part of our little story I guess in Rutherglen's um in, in our move to Rutherglen. Yeah, very important family lineage and, and wonderful that you celebrate it today. Tell me a little bit about that first vintage and the first wine that you ever made. So, it was a very interesting thing. It was new to me. I'm self-taught as a winemaker and and vineyard and viticulture. And so, in that, I had no idea what was going on. It was all very <laughs> intense. Um, I guess you, you watch these little vines produce small bunches of grapes and they were little at the time because it was the drought. It was a, a millennial drought in the early thousands when we planted and and things things were little. They didn't grow much. They really struggled and we ended up with a very small crop of Jurif, Um in 2004 and for the first few years we had that wine contract made because we had no facilities and no idea. Um, it wasn't until uh, 2010 I made my first wine under the guidance with a few friends who said just don't do this. Do do everything else but don't do these things because they'll get you in a bit of trouble. And um, it was a case of as the vineyard matured so did some of our skills and our facilities and um, here, here we are, we've, we've you know, built a winery and a, a cellar door that facilitates all processes. But in the early days, it was, it was pretty, um, pretty hard work. I remember one of the things that was new to me was cooling a ferment because that's apparently what you had to do. And um, we had no refrigeration. So, I remember I had a look around the property and there was an old 44-gallon um, drum and there was an old washing machine pump that was lying around and I, I figured out that if I kept cold water in that, I could circulate it around the ferments. And so, I went down to the local um, service station. They had an ice, um, bagged ice facility there and I called the guy who owned that facility about half an hour up the road and he agreed to sell me wholesale ice. So, I'd go there every three days, fill up my ute tray with ice um, in bags and then drive it back home. I put the bags in the 44-gallon drum with water and I'd salt it using high amounts of salt because I've 
read that that helps keep the water cooler. <laughs> and we cooled our ferments using that pretty archaic practice for the first couple of years. And then, you know, as the business establishes, you can afford some equipment. So we, we went that way. But yeah, it was all very much DIY and each process was um, the learning of it developed through necessity and the way to solve the problem was very DIY, like really DIY. So it's, it's, it's been a journey of first principles, that's for sure. <laughs> it's actually not too far removed from what the great Maurice O'Shea did a long time ago by kind of seeking out, uh, trying to get cheaper ice and to cool a ferment. And I have to say, in a restaurant setting, there has been many a times where, you know, a, a slurry of ice with a bit of salt in it has cooled down some champagne or more importantly, the beers for after service. So, it's a skill that is very, very important. 100%. You know, I think you can get a bottle of champagne down to temperature in about 16 minutes with ice and water and salt, you you're winning. That's that's a good thing for life, I reckon. <laughs> I totally agree. I want to ask you a little bit about the beginnings of, of Scion. Being the background that you said in, in marketing, did, what came first? Did you have an idea of what you wanted Scion to be? Um, and, you know, did you have a vision of, of the, your brand and kind of start with that and then kind of the wines came along after or did you kind of were the grapes kind of the incentive tell me how you start a brand with your background yeah it's a really it's a good question it goes to the core of everything we still do today and it was certainly a big part of what um the decisions we made even before planting it came down to the hill that we're on itself and so fundamentally we had a vision to Take what's really traditional for our region. That's proven that in a grape growing sense that the varieties and the rootstocks we work with work well and that's fundamental. And knowing that those grape varieties we really had a passion for being Giraffe and Musket and Viognier, which is what we planted, um, using those varieties, what makes them thrive irrespective of the, the, the clone and rootstock in the region? And we, we found a hill and it's a north-facing hill. It's got a gentle gradient and it's it's amazing because we've got different sorts of soil type and we've got different temperatures that seem to happen over the season and we get basically within a small block wonderful um, consistency of sun and temperature but we get variability of soil profile so it gives lots of winemaking options and that's all under this idea of how do we take what is really known and, and does well in Rutherglen, but not deliver that. How do we deliver something that's building on some of these ideas or I guess sidetracking them a little bit in the interest of learning, experimentation, um, delivering something unique to you know um, followers of the region and wine in general. Um, so essentially it was, the vision was, let's take the tradition and, and not deliver it. What site's going to work? And we found this beautiful hill. And then from there, everything kind of falls into place. If we have this as a grounding principle, then the way the product looks when it's on a shelf, the way that some of the winemaking techniques can can um, be used to deliver what is a vision, then it really makes a lot of sense. And so decisions become straightforward. Um, they're clear. There's focus in all of them. And I think among the different decisions you do make, I guess, resulting in the finished wines that we have in our little portfolio, there's a consistency of the way they, they message to the drinker and the way that they all work as a little group. So vision was first and everything else followed. Mm. 
I mean, like you said, I think Rutherglen is such a special region and, and the history is so um you know, detailed and, and important for our country. So it, it's wonderful to kind of hear that, you know, that's kind of what was really important to you at the start. And it must be difficult kind of releasing wines that are made a bit differently um, in in the space you're in. Did you come up against any challenges in those first few vintages making wine differently than how people were making them in the region? Oh, absolutely. And we still are. I mean, I think it's that every wine is unique and every, as every season is unique and every row and every vine will perform in its own way each time around. So the challenge is to try and create something the best it can be given that variability. Um, and that's with respect to, I guess, developing our little brand and I guess having an identity that grew in the community and then more broadly in the wine community. Um, of course, there's lots of challenge. There's challenge in moving to a rural area from the city that in itself um, at the time was a big one for me. It was. It took a while to really find my feet, um, which is a good thing as well, um, but that was challenging. And of course, you know, when there's a, a new little brand that looks a bit different in how it's marketed and the wines are a little bit left of the center, then yeah, of course, people sort of go, oh, what are these guys doing, you know? But over time, there's a really great respect for the fact there is difference in our region. You know, we've got some, we're up to, I think, eight generations now with some of our producers and some of my colleagues, and that's that's remarkable. And whilst some of the, the local brands speak for tradition, that's a strength for someone like me who, I guess, uses tradition as a base to, to launch from. Um, I think we show each other a special, if we're all the same, there would be an, an homogenized in this idea. It wouldn't be very exciting. So I think um, some people might say, oh, you know, are you competing? Is it is it hard when you, you're not like the usual sort of mix? But that's actually the strength. I think um, being a small region and, and, you know, you see everyone down at the supermarket every other night, it's a tiny little town. The ability for us to celebrate the fact we're different is what we do and it works well for us. So it's a real positive thing. Um, and I think the notion of having to find your place, the notion that, you know, when you first set up, it's not all roses from day one. That's great because it really sorts you out. I think it, it builds a bit of um, resilience and it's quite humbling you know i think wine's an industry that's led by ego really it's um it's all about the winemaker and this sort of thing which is i guess one of the necessities of getting wine to market in some senses but it doesn't go far in small communities what's important is to um i think be pretty humble in what you're trying to do and just do it with um, a healthy respect for what's around um but do it with your own vision and that's 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 hopefully how we we're perceived in that sense it's certainly what drives me anyway. I think uh, often when I visit a region, I like to listen to how other wineries um, speak about their colleagues and speak about cellar doors um, and just, you know, in general, the community kind of spirit. And one thing I really noticed about the Rutherglen was the respect that they were, a lot of your colleagues would pay you and talk about, you know, you've got to visit this cellar door while you're here. It's amazing. And that really says a lot to me about the spirit and the community of the region, but also about how much they respect what you're doing and for all the for things that you were doing differently, which is wonderful. I do want to talk a little bit about the a couple of varieties 
particular Musket and Derif, but maybe Viognier, if you if you want to speak about that. Um, I want to talk about if you could maybe describe a little bit about the varieties themselves from from your perspective, but also then how you approach and, and pop them into bottle. Well, the two iconic varieties of region, whether you visit it or not, um, go with the, the term Rutherglen, uh, Jurif and Musket. And um, they've both been here for ages. Um, you know, Jurif's been here for over 100 and I think it's about 13 years now. Um, musket, similar story. So they're really, they're set up to speak of the region's strengths, which is our weather and our soil profiles and the way in which we make wine. They both varieties um, like warmth, they like sun, they like to be ripe, um, and they they offer for me the ability to um, make a few different things from that one grape. Um, Jurif in particular, so that that arrived here um, off the back of Phylloxera devastating Australia's wine regions, and it was. Um, Procured from Montpellier, Dr. Francois Jurif uh, came up with the variety, he named it after himself, <laughs> as you do, and it's a combination of Syrah and Palauson. And these two varieties have got an interesting heritage in themselves, but when it was delivered to Rutherglen, it was thought that it would resist phylloxera. There was little known about it, but of course, um, in the end, phylloxera claimed it. But in the Rutherglen Research Institute down the road, which is in Australia's wine history, is a phenomenal um, facility that's little known. But they managed to keep a lot of these varieties surviving because they were able to quickly regraft onto then what was understood to resist phylloxera, American rootstock, um, to keep them growing. And that's what happened. So the history of these varieties is important, I guess, in a romantic sense in Rutherglen. But as they're proven to work so well here, um, They've helped develop the identity of the region. Um, I guess we think about really rich, intense red wine for Jury if we think about big tannin, very dry wines. They're often very rustic from Rutherglen. They're earthen. They have um, a lot of power and they're typically very ripe. It's a late ripening grape, which is why it thrives in this region with a lot of warmth and a lot of sun. And so when it comes to see them on the table in a glass, we think winter, fireside, everything big, and that's delicious. There's um, a lot of really healthy interest for that style. However, for me, when I look at the grape, I think about things like its texture, so its tannin. Texture for me in, say, something like rosé is really important. We make rosé with Jurif. Um, it's handpicked just to do this wine because that natural tannin Jurif has in its DNA provides this lovely, savoury, um, underlying quality for the rosé and when it's the fruit's picked by hand really early, I'm talking absolutely suboptimally for any dry red, it's barely ripe but we have good nat natural acidity, we have this lovely wave of um, savoury nuance through the tannin which is subtle but we have the brightest, freshest red fruit and so we take it early um, off the vine for rosé. Then if we start to think about the way the variety profiles aromatically, it can be quite perfumed. I think when it gets very ripe, it's more rustic and more fruit driven. But when it's in this middle zone, it has this lovely, um, we see in our vineyard, cherry plum as a character. Um, we see this lifted violet nuance. We see all these wonderful um, aromatic, uh, savory and herbal qualities sitting behind this bright red fruit. And so, for me, using stem in ferment really can help 
um, show off this character that Jurif has inherently. Um, so then there's versatility in winemaking. And then one of the reasons it really um, became popular in Rutherglen was back in the day when fortifieds were what we did. You know, table wine in Australia wasn't drunk like it, it is now. And the fortified wine um, styles of your port styles, Jurif was a cornerstone of that in region. It delivers high colour, high tannin. And if we think to um, Portuguese varieties, which often exhibit that for fortifieds, Jurif was perfect. So we, um, we in fact do reference that tradition in Rutherglen by fortifying it, but in a, a Banyol style, a Southern French style, which doesn't use oak, it doesn't use brandy. Um, so there's three uses for Jurif for me. Um, and then some, we do a lot of experimentation with the variety and like with musket, it's um, synonymous with a very sweet uh, uh, dessert wine, high sugar, um, it's fortified, so high alcohol. All of that delivers the most umptious drink in the world. It's revered as the richest wine. It's a phenomenal thing, naturally vine ripened, but we pick it really early. We make a dry white wine with musket that's really textural. And we also make a very lightly fortified, moderately um, picked with moderate sugar to make a very delicate dessert wine, a cocktail cocktail mixer, a, um, a very, I guess, aromatic and, and quite a sensuous style of musket that doesn't deliver that the power of sweetness we're used to. So traditional varieties, versatile, just you know, as, as far as your vision goes is where these grapes can go and they grow so well here. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and I'm, I'm so glad to see um, you speak about them in that way because they are varieties that are kind of unlike anything else. And I often talk to people first about what musket is like in the vineyard because I said once you've tasted a musket grape off the vine, you'll never forget it again. They're some of the most delicious bursts of kind of flavour that you're ever going to have. What's your approach with um, making – because you make a a few different muskets, don't you? Mm, That's right. So we have two varieties of musket. One is what is considered Rutherglen brown musket. It's um, the – the ruby-skinned, white-fleshed grape that everyone knows and loves. It's sweet. It's like you say, when you eat this off the vine, it is the most delicious thing you'll ever taste. And that's not an exaggeration. We've had customers we've taken to the vineyard. My vineyard guys, they're just eating it all day when they're working in there. Our dogs run down and eat it off the vine. Everyone loves that musket. Um, But we've also got a really unusual white variety of musket, and there's many varieties around the world. This one's um, orange musket, and it's it's a white grape. It's harvested really early. It's the first one we pick in at the start of February. And whilst it doesn't have colour, it's it's a white, um, it has everything in common with the musket you described where we think about something floral. And these are terpene-driven varieties. Everything about them is in the nose. And... For me in the winery, the, the, the aroma of the wine is 90% of the experience. Whether we think about it or not, you can open a bottle of these wines um, and when they're sitting in, in the glass, that perfume will deliver itself around a table and people are nearly drinking it before they've even seen it. And I think both the varieties we have, they're fundamental to their, the identities of those wines, but in the vineyard, 
They're just like they taste in the glass. They're phenomenal things, very unlike any other grape I've, I've worked with for sure. So cool. And I think I think your, your wines really, really showcase um, the beauty of both those varieties in a traditional sense, but they're also just so exciting and they, they make you think, which is um, great. I mean, I think... It, it's meant to be delicious, first of all, when we make wine and we and we when we drink it. But it's great when you, it's not only absolutely delicious, but it also gets your brain going and you've got questions. Like and, and immediately drinking your wines, I was like, I've got so many questions I want answered, and and how have they done that? And I just think it's that's so exciting. But I want to know a little bit. Tell me a little bit about how you you decided on the name Scion. It's a funny one. So when when we established um, our little business, I say we because it was mum and I. We both. Um, I grew up drinking wine with both mum and dad. They were passionate, um, I guess, hobbyist wine lovers. And in later life, um, mum decided, you know, maybe we could give viticulture a go. And so we drink a lot together. And as it turned out, that one of the reasons I moved up was to work with her to start this little this little um, brand and took a while to um, think of something, a name that would represent what we do because it's, it's pretty important. Um, and when people haven't tasted your wine, I guess the idea of the, the brand and how it presents is, is everything. And the name Scion, it means two things and it references why we're here and what we do, why we do what we do. Um, the first meaning is uh, a horticultural meaning and whether we're in a – a nursery or in our case in a vineyard, it talks um, to the idea of grafting. And when we're grafting a plant, um, a, a new shoot onto an existing plant, and in the case of a vineyard, it's having a rootstock in some instances that suit a place and we graft onto that the variety we would like to grow. The fusion of where the graft and the existing roots meet, the fusion of old and new growth is called the scion. And if we then, I guess, step back and think about what we're trying to achieve in the winery, it's exactly that. We're taking traditional varieties and riffing around them to create something that um, is of a different vision, something very contemporary. It also pertains to, um, I guess, family lineage. Uh, a scion is, is generally someone within a notable family um, that's, that's coming through those ranks. It's it's the next generation. And so it also talks about my history with the Morris the Morris clan up here. So it's got a dual meaning. And I think importantly, it's just about how something exists um, to be something different. But none of the end result can't happen without both those two things. You can't have something innovative engaging without, I guess, a cornerstone that it's been born out of. So it also, I think for me particularly, it, it offers to it offers respect to what is traditional as much as it does something that's new and different. It's both of them that make that happen. So, yeah, that's why we settled on the name. And I guess it's a curious name. It's it, it's but we're really proud of it. It certainly suits um, suits our vision perfectly. Yeah, it sure does. I'm. I mean. I can't imagine you know trying to find a name and coming across something and then seeing that word in like you said, in some viticultural books and then also, you know, realize, then seeing it again and going this, oh, my gosh, this just, it must have been one of those moments where you're like, that's it and it's just a light bulb moment and, and it all comes together, which I think is so cool and it rolls off the tongue beautifully. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I also want to talk about your cellar door, uh, Gourmet Traveller Best Cellar Door. 
awarded uh, a couple of years ago? Yes, 2022, I think. We've picked that up a few times over the years, yeah. Probably yeah. one of the most engaging, exciting Celador experiences I've ever had. And I, I get to a few and um, I really, really loved it. I want to say a couple of things about it. First off, and that is that um, I tend to not like to do too much research before I go and visit somebody um, for the first time because I really want to have that first experience and not know too much and discover it along the way, just like um, a guest would when they walk in a door somewhere. And the first thing that I noticed when we pulled up was that you had a Tesla charging station right out the front and then you had uh, Sasha, your beautiful pup, that greeted us as we got off the bus. And the more I found out about you and what you do at Scion, I thought this is the perfect example of old world meets new world meets, you know, amazing foresight, but also has the spirit of what, you know, a family and a, a legacy is all about. So that was really cool. But the cellar door is amazing. It's very minimalist in the way that it's decorated and the decor. What I noticed was that because of that minimalist um, framework, what you notice when you're sitting down and look around is the crazy colours that you have in the glasses of the wine that's being poured. So the hero of the whole place is what you're doing and the glass and these beautiful, gorgeous kind of thin framed glasses and then just these vibrant colours. So you're looking at the bottle and the glasses and that's what's drawing your attention. It's so cool. That, thanks for that feedback. It's really great to hear because it's exactly what we tried to achieve. Um, the cellar door is so simple. It's a, it's a galvanised shed. Um, when we built it back in 2005, it was just that. It was from a kit. It's got a quite a tall 35-degree pitch. It's like nine by nine metres. And then off the back of that, we tacked on another little space that we had a few barrels in and slowly been extended over the years. But the cellar door itself... It, it's designed to really speak of the idea zone in the same sense. The old is the corrugated facade that you see when you walk in. It's reminiscent of what is an Australian country shed. It's as simple as that. But, of course, you walk through the door and it's then designed to be very, um, very simple and very thoughtful in the way the light moves through the room, the way that when you're sitting, all aspects are framed by glass, whether it's down into the elevage cellar where all the barrels are, whether it's down the fermentation wing, whether you turn around um, just to see where, where, you, where you are sitting in this little lee of the hill and then you're looking out against remnant grey box. The grey box we've then taken into the cellar door and it forms the leading edge of our um, cellar door tasting bench. So it referencing place and then... The, the bulk of the tasting bench is just a white surface and with all the natural light we're able to bring into the space through the double glazing and overhead skylighting, um, it is about the wine experience. It's about embellishing that and allowing you to engage with it and I suppose in referencing the idea that with musket we, we taste it when we're smelling it. I think... Like with all wine, whether we're acknowledging it or not, we're drinking it when we're looking at it and the colour is so important. Vitality, hues that speak of the way the flavours might profile, all of that's really important. So if we can offer that to people if they want to engage with it or suggest they should when they're not 
considering it, the space delivers that. And of course, if we start to then clutter that space up with other, other bits and bobs, maybe the focus wouldn't be on the wine as much. And it's not to say it's, a, you know, it's all about wine. The wine hopefully guides people tasting to be all about the space and who they're with at the same time. So it's really, it's a relationship between what we're making, where it's made, why it's made and the people that are enjoying it. And yeah, thanks for that feedback. It's exactly what we were hoping to achieve with the with the space and we're so proud of it. It talks of what we're doing. I mean, the, the fundamental brief we had in our mind was how can the space engage with all the ideas we have without our staff or us having to convey them verbally? So we wanted mm. the space to be able to reflect how the wine was made and where because you can see that from where you're sitting at, in the tasting area. And it needed to represent, I guess, the contemporary nature of the wine. So the space is a lot of white, glass, wood, um, brass, and and um, it's it's got some angular form. So it's it's quite um, clean and modern in that sense. Um, but hopefully, it's fairly humble. It's a galvanised shed. It's it's not fancy from the outside. I think you've absolutely nailed that, and especially when you said about non-verbal because. I, when I sat in there and I was looking at the people that were tasting and then having a drink, I thought, gosh, I never say this, but this is somewhere I would like to be seen at, which is just something that I thought, ooh, I've never said that. Like in my brain, I was thinking, gross. But, and I was like, why? And then I went, why have you, why, why do you think that? And I thought, well, it feels trendy. But at the end of the day, it came down to the fact that I was like, I feel relaxed here. I feel like I sat back and I've just had this like wave of relax relaxation and also kind of just easy living. And I think it says a little bit about you too because I felt like you could come into that cellar door with grubby shoes on if you just had a big day, have a Negroni or a gin and tonic or something like that and just like chill out with your mates. You could also have a really kind of formal tasting where you went through every vintage you've ever made and, you know, have a bit of a masterclass as well. And I think it just said a little bit about how you approach things, but you get a real vibe when you're in there. And that's, that is why it's such an important must visit when you're in the Grouther Glen, but also just a joy to be at. Well, thank you. That's super kind. I mean, and it, it's exactly how the place operates. We see all kinds of great people, whether they're there to enjoy catching up with their friends. They might have met, you know, Canberra friends. They're from Melbourne. They meet halfway in Rutherglen. That's a common theme. So they just want to hang out, catch up, enjoy wine. Or we might have people who are we're hosting who want technical information. They want to look at back vintages. They want to link season to what they're tasting. You know, and then we see people who just love wine. They don't know why, they just love it. And if it appeals to them, great. They buy it and they have a good time. So we see a real mix. And of course, the space needs to work for all those people. Um, it's a space that um, complements wine it's, and, and hopefully that the wine complements the people who visit. So it's, yeah, it's a, we love it actually. And it's, it's good fun. Whenever we we don't close often, it might be three or four days a year, and sometimes it's because we're having a, a staff do. We're all patting ourselves on the back or in celebrating something. We close and we sit in a space, and we just we really enjoy it when it's not working for the business. When it, we get to have it for ourselves as well, we we just love it. Well, that's really important to do because we all know that it's you know 
a lot of a lot of teamwork to have a successful cellar door or a, s- a successful business. So it's so important that you do get to enjoy the space. And, and, and like you said, hopefully they associate it with some good times as well as hard work. Uh, I want to ask, I want to ask you just to find out a little bit more about your palate. Riley, if you had to drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Such a tricky one. Um, I mean, for me, I love, you can't beat a cleansing ale. It's just an unbeatable thing on a hot summer's day after doing a lot of wine tasting. You know, a cleansing lager I'm good for every day of the week. I like the maltiness, the simplicity of a lager and I'm good for a lager all times. You know, they just, they punctuate the end of the day um, nearly every night. And it's certainly, yeah, after some long days of tasting, you know, it's a go-to. Um, I guess one, to drink something for the rest of your life is a massive call. So, <laughs> I suppose it does warrant a little bit of thinking. The, what I love is um, Viognier as a dry white wine. I find it such an engaging complex wine it's manifests place like no other it shows where things where it's from and um particularly um Condrieu, you know in france the home of yonier um for me i'd drink something from andre perret you know he's mm. regarded as one of the the world's you know um best Viognier producers and we see that in those wines and they're inspirational for me. So, something from, from Andre Perret. And then I guess one of the things we, we drink uh, most at home between my partner and I and when we're celebrating, when we feel like it, you know, is champagne. Can't beat it. And I think I've got some great memories of drinking um, Le Mandier Bernier um, as a producer in all around the place and uh, anything from him, up, um, from the, those guys. But the Longitude is a, a favourite of ours. It's a well-priced, um, you know, French bubbles. It's delicious. It's It's got fairly low dosage, so it's got great structure. It's a wine that is complex if you want to think about it, but it can be used just to celebrate with at the same time. So I think those three for me, you know, hard to beat and I'd happily drink them forevermore. No two ways. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. And I de- definitely the first person to say Viognier, but I love the way that you speak about it. And I really like the way that you make it as well. So, Riley, if I had to pick one word, I'd say today has been illuminating, which is the same way I feel about your wines as well. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. I always learn so much and I'm inspired when I chat with you. And uh, I can't wait till our paths cross again. Well, thank you, Shantae. It's been wonderful. It's been yeah, a great Great to talk and thanks so much for um, inviting me on. It's been great. Thank you. Cheers to you. Thanks, Riley. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.